This is gonna hurt. It's time, it's time for the Suffering, the suffering Podcast. Podcast. We find our place in this world that gives us purpose. Engrossing ourselves, making a difference, and impacting those around us. To those around us becoming something of a superhero, showing up to save the day. Day after day, seeing the worst in humanity can eat away at your soul. Little by little, and with each new incident, a piece of your compassion disappears. Until one day, your exterior appears as hard as stone, but your insides are jelly. Who is there to help those called upon to help us? The heroes must appear invincible, but invincibility will void any humanity inside your soul. This is the reality of police work and the price of heroism. I'm Kevin Donaldson here with Mike Felice, and on this episode of The Suffering Podcast, we welcome a very special guest from a very long way, and that's Detective Chris Anderson, who should change his name to Chief Chris Anderson, but he refuses to because that's the way he's branded. And on this episode of The Suffering Podcast, we talk about the suffering of being a detective. Now, Chris has spent his entire career trying to give those small answers to people just looking for justice. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much for flying all this way. Your arms must be tired. Uh-uh. <laughs> yeah, look at that. And he came up just to see us. Of course. That's so. the only reason I'm here, guys. He's flying back out tonight. <laughs> that's right. No other business in New Jersey. He's just coming up to see us. and then get that, That's how big the Suffering Podcast has got. Why not? Why not? Why not? <laughs> you know. But, you know, it, it, Kevin, again, and we talked about it before, thank you for bringing another guy in here that's a lot bigger than me. <laughs> well, yeah. We, we got to get Scott Stevens back He's, in here or EMS Eric. In, Someone that's shorter than in me. In all I, fairness, Chris is like four or five inches taller than me. <laughs> I mean, so, I, I walked in here. I thought he was part of the curtain. He's, right. he's got the you know, dark shirt on. That's huge. <laughs> that's how we grow them in Alabama, man. That's Good. what we do. That's what Southern cooking does that's, to you. That's it, man. It's the collard greens. <laughs> they, they don't have uh, Taylor Ham or pork roll down there. I think, no, I think a, that stunts our growth down. It's, it's <laughs> like the Fred Flintstone where you put the, the brontosaurus ribs right, right, on right. the cart and just, and you just eat it. That's right. That's what we do. <laughs> Did you ever have Taylor Ham or pork roll? Or? I don't even know what those wow. are. Wow. Taylor Ham. You got to take, take them out after this. I've, I've had ham. You know, no. we usually take it in the backyard and kill it ourselves. <laughs> <Damn. about. laughs> no, you take a bunch of ham, throw a ton of salt on it, and it's so good. Really? Oh, it's so good. That sounds. How, uh, how long are you up here for? So I'm only here for a couple of days. I think I fly out uh, Saturday. So today is Thursday, two days. We, we got to get them. We'll get it in Taylor Ham. Yeah. Taylor Ham, egg and cheese. Okay. Yeah. So it, so just to give you a little, just give the Southern boy a little education. Okay. If you go south of the Raritan Bridge in New Jersey, mm-hmm. it's pork roll. And okay. this is this is an argument that's been, go- serious, this is an argument that's been going on since the beginning of time. Okay. In North Jersey, it's Taylor Ham. The truth of the matter is Taylor Ham is the brand. It's like calling a tissue a Kleenex. Uh-huh. People in North Jersey don't understand that. I, as a South Jersey educated man, do. We're, we're smart in North Jersey. I mean. <laughs> South Jersey, I mean. Before we get into anything, let's th- throw a big shout out to our marquee sponsor. That's Toyota of Hackensack. We don't trust anybody as police, but we do trust Toyota of Hackensack. So go to toyotahackensack.com. Let them find you a car. Chris, you know, we, we've talked a lot, and I'm, I'm so excited to have you in here today. Um, there's a lot of stuff that I'd like to pick your brain about, mm-hmm. of course, you know, your time on First 48, your time on Reasonable Doubt, and your new projects going on with Crime and Cookie Juice and your new books coming out. But before we do, one of our things that we always do every single episode is we take a question from our audience mm-hmm. and we ask our guests. So you're a guest today. You get the first crack at this, and it comes from Sal Parisi. Somebody actually used their real name. 
What's the toughest case you ever investigated? Wow. That, you know, that's, um, it's kind of hard to say. Um, because look in, in Birmingham, man, we had a lot of homicides. I worked a lot of homicides in Birmingham. What was your, what was your yearly average there? Yearly average, it was over a hundred. So that may not sound like a lot to a lot of people, but you have to understand how, what's our population. So our population in the city of Birmingham is under 200,000. So that's the reason why when you put it per capita, mm-hmm. Birmingham is one of the most dangerous cities in the, in the country. Not to mention, that's it, not how many people were shot. That's what no. people don't, that, your shootings probably were up in the thousands. And we got one of the best hospitals there is in the country. And, and they have saved a lot of people, but, you know, those you know, hundred the, per the year. Old trauma center. Right, right exactly, <laughs> man. UAB is a an excellent hospital. They, they they have saved a lot of people. Where When I walked into an emergency room to see my victims, I've looked at them and said, oh, they're not going to make it. And some of them did. So UAB, if you want to sponsor the Crime and Cookie Juice, reach out to Detective Chris Anderson. There Instagram. you go. That's right. That, that's University of Alabama, Birmingham. Birmingham. That's yeah. correct. That's right. So out of, out of those hundred average per year, or any case, it doesn't have to be a homicide. What do you think the toughest case you ever investigated was? So the the toughest one that I investigated was uh, I wrote about it in my book that'll be coming out pretty soon uh, called the case. Uh, it was the murder of a young woman by the name of Kayla, and uh, that case touched me personally because. We talk about this. I think Kevin and I, yeah, I think we've talked about this a little bit as I was investigating that case. Now, my daughter's name is Kayla. As I was investigating that, that, that puts case, a personal touch on that it. That right adds the personal yeah. touch. They Absolutely. were not too, not too far a difference in age. Uh, and she was just, she was a, an innocent victim that was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, that's that us as cops, we understand that, that we don't have a lot of victims that are innocent victims. But, uh, this, this young lady was an innocent victim and it got to the point I was, I was going through so much as an, as a new investigator when I got that case that every time I saw this young lady or every time I thought about her, it wasn't her. It was my daughter. I was investigating my own child's murder and my child was right there with me every night that I came home. And, uh, you know, it, it just, it just took a toll on me and I got really close and personal with the family and, for three months, I want to say, it, it was all I could do was to work this case. Did you ever solve it? Solved it, yeah. Because if you didn't, imagine how that would weigh on you. Man, dude, it. it I would. I probably wouldn't have taken the sergeant's exam. I probably would have stayed in homicide until I can got. I got that case solved because it was one of those cases that didn't match the the first forty eight rule where you need a, a lead within the first four. I didn't have a single lead for this case at all for three months and I'm talking about I did everything I mean I went back to the crime scene I I, I knocked on doors I I put out flyers went on the news everything that you could do imaginable to get a lead on a case I didn't get it but when it happened oh my gosh when I got that lead when you get that one that one lead one lead it's like the floodgates open and we got the guys in custody and they all confessed to that portion of the case and it was it was like I had been carrying a two ton sack of bricks on my back the entire time 
was one of those it was one of those cases because I think we all can relate to this where you go home at night and your jaw hurts from the stress. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, what do you think? I know you worked at DB for quite a while. Yeah, I was in the bureau for about ten years and, mm-hmm. and one case that still sticks with me and it was never solved. We had uh I wasn't even working that night, but we had a car to go down the street, two people across the street, flipped the flipped the people in the air and the car took off. They left a, a little piece of the grill at the scene and we figured that I'll never forget it came back to a GMC envoy. Yeah. So we had a <laughs> we we had a GMC dealer in town and we took the I I caught the case the next day. Mm. So I, I they they didn't even call me in that night. I caught it the next day. So I was behind the eight ball to begin with. We had the the little piece had to be about a five inch piece of the grill. We wound up figuring out I came from a GMC envoy. We went down we worked our asses off between us and, and the, the local, you know, the, the county prosecutor's office, fatal accident squad and all that. For months, I knew the part number of that piece. The color of the car, it was red. I'll never forget. The, the color of the car, it was a red car. It was the color number was U86. I remember mm-hmm. everything about it. I think those- never. Never. Solve that crime. It, it still eats me today. I yeah. think those, those they, they, the people weren't killed. They were, you know, they were hurt. But it was a hit and run accident with two uh, two pedestrians struck, and I never saw that. I think those cases you become personally invested in, like Chris with his daughter and you with this here. I think you remember all those little details because something. I actually had a different answer to this question. And, you know, my answer was a little bit more mundane because it's more about the psychological effects of certain crimes. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you go into a residential burglary, you, which you know has a very slim chance of being caught, and you mm-hmm. see the psychological effects it does. I remember a young a young lady, she didn't want to sleep in her bed. Somebody had broken into their house. They came home, obviously, discovered everything, and she didn't want to sleep in her bed, and that it just affected me. But that's not the toughest one I, I, I ever investigated. Unlike you guys, I never got a chance to be in the Bureau. I wasn't – I just – Well, you had the tougher one. You were an accident investigator, so that was – but there, it's different, and I'm going to tell you why being in the DB is different than doing accident investigations. I, in fact, I, I investigate a lot of photo, uh, motor vehicle crashes, a lot of fatals, and that was my thing. But all the evidence for a motor vehicle crash is there, or 90% of it is there. You have mm-hmm. to uncover it. Where you guys are working cases where there's no evidence, mm-hmm. there's not evidence present because whatever actor committed the crime is gone. So – you know, you take the skid marks off the road. And, and the one I, the one that sticks in my head, it was a stolen car out of Livingston. Kid came down the street. With the, one of the officers was in pursuit. He launches up a tree in, in the car. It was a white Lexus uh, LX3. No. What was this sedan? It was a 350 or 300 or something. Split the car in two. On a tree that was, I don't know, four inches in diameter. It was the most amazing. And hung up in the tree. I can tell you he hit a fire hydrant going up the berm. He was doing 77 miles an hour when he launched. The fire hydrant went 311 feet. The engine went 110 feet and went into the back of a car, and he just died of an aortic tear. Mm-hmm. Those are those details, and that's what I'm talking about. Where you, I, like, It totally resonates with me when you say you remember the serial number because I can remember those numbers, and I'll bet you this, this accident's 23 years old, mm-hmm. and you never forget them. Yeah, man. But that's the one that sticks out in my mind. Well, yeah, that that shows the love for the job. Yeah, you know, 
I mean, obviously, the, the three of us have the love that we needed for the job because we remember those things. Mm-hmm. You talk about you talk to one of these cops that just takes a job for the paycheck. They don't remember any of that stuff. Well, right. It's a puzzle. You know, it's a puzzle that you're trying to put together with missing pieces. Yeah. Where you guys, and again, I have to give it to the people in the DB on this one because you are, you're trying to put a puzzle together where you have no idea where the pieces, at least I know where the pieces are. Right. Yeah. So, so the, there are, there are pieces of evidence that is left at every single crime scene. This is, this is me teaching, you know, going, <laughs> going back to my classroom, you know, there, there's evidence there. You just have to find it. That's the only thing that, that, that happens. We don't find that evidence, but in every single crime scene, especially now where, where science is really taking over the investigative process, you know, if, if we had half of the, 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 the scientific evidence or the scientific capabilities that we would have had, I would have loved to stay in the detective bureau, would have loved it because they got so much. It was so interesting. Yeah. Like yeah. like Kevin said, putting together a puzzle. Yeah. You know, you get this piece of information, you take this information, you, you put it together, mm-hmm. and you get a bigger picture. But you got to right. turn it a couple times you before turn it fits. It. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Then you get that piece and you put it together and you get the bigger piece. <laughs> and that's the that's love right. of it. That, yeah. And you know what? That, Sal, that, that was, I pulled that question because Chris was coming in there and I was like, oh, you know, I don't know how I'm going to answer this one. It might not be that good of a quick, but it turned out to be something that. Yeah, man. I, I want to go out and do an accident. Now. <laughs> no, right. But you got to understand something. I was one of those weird people that actually liked doing motor vehicle crashes. Really? Mm-hmm. Nobody likes doing motor vehicle crashes. I hated them. Of course. I hated them. What do you mean you were weird? <laughs> right. You're still one of those weird people. As a matter of fact, I worked a guy with a guy on the squad, recently came out of the DB, mm-hmm. and they did a lot of our domestics. Right. So the DV paperwork in New Jersey changes every single day. And I hated domestics. I couldn't yeah. stand domestics. I made a deal with him. Now, in the, in the department I worked in, maybe we got one or two domestics a week, mm-hmm. maybe. Okay. I said, look, I'll make you a deal. I'll do every motor vehicle crash while we're working together, but you take every DV. Is that the, and he goes, absolutely a deal. Now, it seemed like I was getting the short end of the stick, right? I could do what, what they called an NJTR1. I could do it in, I don't know, 10 minutes. I, I would do it before the accident was cleared. Everything. Soup to nuts. Because I knew... There was, there's numbers going down the side. I knew what had to go in those numbers off the you, top of my head. You had to take the template, put it over it, it oh, each, each side, and put these numbers well, in that was correlate the, to the accident. That was the old days of the yeah. paper. I, yeah, I can exactly. guarantee you that I, I'll steal some reports, some accident reports that I got back from the state with my name on them that I messed up something <laughs> on. I can guarantee you they're still well, you know, around b- Back in the day, like Kevin said, when we used to have to write the reports, we had to, write it, right? we had to draw pictures uh-huh. of the accident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Remember it well. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm not an artist. Uh, exactly. So you know, they, They'd come back to me and say, what the hell is this? I don't know. I put arrows where the car was going. <laughs> so if you're looking for dirt on Detective Chris Anderson, just go back to the Oprah, his old. <laughs> open some of those old case, those accident case files. So you can open them up and there it is. Car A hit car B. <laughs> done. Right. Stick stick figures for the victims <laughs> laying out in the road. You know, hey, that's, I always used to say driver A stated blank. Driver B stated blank. Right. Collision occurred. Done. Let the, let the insurance company figure Dude, it out. I know. Yeah, man. Sal, thank you so much for sending that one in. Keep sending in your questions. Trust me, we want to get them on the air. Mm-hmm. Now, Chris Anderson, the big man on campus. <laughs> From Alabama. <laughs> do, they, right. do they actually refer to you, on your, on, as you in your new position as chief as the big man on campus? They, they, I, everybody calls me chief. And I love it. You know, I love going around. Because look, man, 
policing at, at a school, at an institution for higher education, is much different than it was when we worked the streets. To me and a road cop. Yeah. Man, yeah, I know that's right. It's, it is way different, and I love it. Yeah. So why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Okay. So um, my name is Detective Chris Anderson. You weren't born this tall, were you? I was born six foot five, 300 pounds. <laughs> Your poor mother. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no. Uh, so, yeah, I, I started off in police work back in 1995. I want to say it was 94, 95. And the real reason that I went into law enforcement was because of my mother. I'm a second gen law enforcement officer. My mom was one of uh, one of only a few black female police officers in the city of Birmingham. She went in in the, in the, in the mid to late seventies. And before you go any further on that one, yeah. mo- the majority of our audience is New York, New Jersey, okay. maybe some California. I don't think our audience is going to grasp what you just said right there. <laughs> really? Being the first female black officer mm-hmm. in Birmingham, Alabama. Right. Okay. The heart of the civil rights movement. Right. In the 70s. Right. So, so, and I want to make sure that we are clear on this. She wasn't the first, but there were not a lot of black females. And there weren't a lot of black people, people of color, but there were not a lot of black females that came into police work. And, um, you know, they had a, an extremely hard time, you know, breaking those barriers. You know, there, there were several times where she took the uh, supervisory test and, you know, they would hire way less qualified people. Uh, over her because of skin color. You know, it was a it was a good old boy system. And that, you know, that lasted almost until I got there. But I mean, we had this conversation before, though. Women in the 70s really weren't accepted in law enforcement at all. At all. Never mind being, a, you know, a woman of color. I right. Mean, I, so that I mean, that's that's sounds, groundbreaking. Yeah. This sounds like a new suffering podcast story. Ah, you see what I did? You see what I did? <laughs> he just did that. I can't believe you did it, but that's all right. Trademark. <laughs> trademark. <laughs> trademark. We got it. We got so it. let me give you some backstory. Let me give you some. Chris hey, and I. Hey, Drew, get her on the phone now. You know, tell her we, we want her first. Chris and I were talking and I said, wow, that would be a great story to to feel what that was like to go through that type of prejudice in, in a sit in a society where you're the only mm-hmm. and um Chris is like, well, you know, I want to, I want to do it on my show. No, you can't do it on your show. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, you know, you there's know, enough space in the ether for all is, of man. It, it really is. You know, we could do that show two or three times. And, yeah. you know. We don't compete against each other. Exactly. So, you know, That's why I'm we here. All the, you know, we get all the I flew this whole way here. Just to, <laughs> <laughs> just, I, I thought you swam up the coast. But yeah. <laughs> no, right. so how long were you on the street? So, uh, I had two stints on the streets. I didn't spend a lot of time there. From 94 up until uh, 1999, I worked as a street cop. Well, and part of that I spent in narcotics, but I, I only spent like 12 months in narcotics. So uh went to the detective bureau, fell in love with it. I worked in the detective bureau from 1999 all the way up to 2012 when I was promoted. And I, I circulated all the way through. I went through burglary, auto theft, you know, um, robbery. Because we we all we didn't work like most departments. They don't separate their their different crimes. You know, everybody works everything. No, we separated always. So I worked in. Uh, we had a burglary unit that the group that specialized in burglaries. We had a group that specialized in robberies, and then um, I went to homicide. And. I spent the most of my investigative years in homicide, which, by the way, is not a good idea. <laughs> so, and I'm sure we'll get into that. Sure. I'll tell you why I don't think it's a good idea. But, yeah, I spent most of my investigative work in homicide. And then I got promoted, went back to the streets, spent about three years on the streets then. And then uh, 
they moved me back. They brought me back to homicide as a supervisor. Well, how often in, in, in the homicide world did you come across a scene where the person was just clinging to life? Did, were you there when they afterwards to, anticipating the homicide? Yeah. So there were um, there were a couple cases. Usually those cases came about when, when I was working with Birmingham. If we it, it had been a long night and we had been just rolling on every single thing. So we've had a couple times where, you know, either the victim is still out on the scene or they have just transported them to the emergency room. And one thing that the uh, the doctors would always do, they would allow us to come into the emergency room and ask them, you know, if we if we could get some questions out of them, you know, they would allow us to do that. But if, if they were really, really working on this person, trying to really, really save their life, you couldn't do it. So you're just yeah. looking for anything at that you're looking point. Looking for anything. Yeah. Hoping, hoping you can get an admission before. <laughs> Grasping for straws. Yeah, exactly. You got to get it. You got to do it. So, yeah, that, I, that's happened a couple of times yeah. during my career. So, and, and, you know, and, and that's so that's so tough to see someone laying there mm-hmm. grasping for their life and you have to get information out of them. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a tough situation. Hey, so I'm one of those types of people that uh, I hate to see people suffer. I hate it. You're on the wrong show, I, brother. I know, right? I, I mean, you so, I mean, it's a suffering podcast. You know, right? <laughs> I, but I hate to see, I hate, I, I guess I should have, I hate to see people in pain. Like, because, you know, look, I'm one of those dudes that I, I, I care about people, you know. So it was much harder for me to see cases like that. Um than it was to go on to a crime scene where the person is already deceased. And it, but it, it took me a long while to get over that, which is a portion of our book that we're writing that that'll be a portion of my story. Cause you know, there were plenty of nights where I went into homicide and I was, I would wake up in the middle of the night and my victims would be laying next to me or they're sitting in a chair. I had one that slept on my stomach for a while, you know, Really? Yeah, dude. Yeah. You might have sought some help for that one. <laughs> I know, right? But, you know, look, it, it, I did. It was through the, the bottle of liquor that I was drinking. <laughs> you know? The Angel Eyes Bourbon? Yeah, right. That's right. That's right. That was, you know, that was and, the introduction. And, and that's the thing, too, in law enforcement. We all see, you know, dead bodies. Mm-hmm. And you always look at the face. Right. That face is, like, ingrained in your memory. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like you said, I'd go to bed sometimes and— it was a picture frame in like my bedroom and mm-hmm. I'd look up the picture frame and see that person's face. Yeah, like, man. I mean, it, yeah. well, did you, you carry it home with you? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's terrible. Both of you gentlemen were, had to go to several autopsies, right? Oh, absolutely. So what did you think about autopsies? What's your take on those? They smell. Yeah, they, yeah, they, do, they, they, they stink. They, they do stink. <laughs> uh, so I tried to go to the majority of all of my autopsies because I needed that information. Uh, when I first started in homicide, it was hard because I, I was still seeing the victim, little Bobby or uh, my victim, James, instead of looking at that victim as evidence. And so, so here's a, here's another little nugget that I'm going to give your listeners that I, I've, I've said this several times. There are a lot of times where you see law enforcement officers come into a crime scene or come to a house and they seem so detached, like they don't care. Ninety percent of the time when that happens, it's not that they don't care. They have to detach themselves from what's actually happening, from the human emotion side of it. Putting up the front. You put the barrier up in front of you just so you can you can move along and, and find some justice for those victims. That happened to me. And that was part of the reason why I wanted, I, can't, I went into homicide 
if we got time, let me give you a story. We got all night. I'm retired. Kevin's retired. You could talk all night if you're cool. <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, I had a, a very close family member uh, of mine. That, that He was actually my cousin, but we grew up as brothers because my family's so tight. He was a victim of a murder. This is this is my rookie year. I want to say this happened in 92, 93, somewhere around in there. My rookie year as a cop. I'm sorry. Yeah, 94. And I had a family member that was murdered. The guys that came over were homicide investigators uh, that knew my mom, of course. You know, she's there. It's her nephew. And they were so stoic and so detached. And they talked about the crime scene and what happened in front of my aunt who had just lost her only child. That was her, I'm sorry, that was her son. That was her oldest son. Shit, you know, then they, they were so stoic and they would, it was almost like they didn't care. And that was the one thing that she remembered, that the guys that work my son's case don't even care about me. That's that's her mindset. And my mom couldn't do anything to explain it to her because my mom, had she wasn't in the detective bureau. She didn't understand. She she thought that they were kind of buttholish. <laughs> You can curse on this show. Good. Because, <laughs> you know, look. Let it fly. It's another good word we can but, use now. Butthole-ish. Right, uh, butthole-ish. <laughs> she, she thought that they were some real assholes. Fast forward, you know, 10, 15 years. Now I'm in the detective bureau, and now I'm responsible for 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 telling people that their loved one was would never come home again. I wanted to do it in a different way. I wanted to, I sat with my victims and I held my victims hands and I hugged them and I told them that, look, I'm going to be here with you until this thing is solved. I'm going to work. I'm going to do my damnedest to solve this case because of, I didn't want any of my victims, family members to go through what my family had to go through. It wasn't until I realized how hard and how emotional it is to work homicide cases that I had to I had to I had to figure out another way to do it. So looking at my victims, going to autopsies, going out to crime scenes, at first it was extremely hard for me because I still looked at them as little Bobby or little James. It wasn't until I figured out that, hey, this is not little Bobby, this is not little James. This is evidence on this crime scene. Now when I get to their houses, Yes, I am going to make sure that they know that I am completely invested in the, to their justice, to solving the case of Lil James or Lil Bobby. But I, while I'm out on that crime scene, that's evidence. I have to detach myself from the emotion because I'll miss something on that crime scene. But when I'm with the families, no. Well, so that's the reason I asked that is because when I ever went to any autopsy, we had to follow the body as a chain of evidence, like you said. Mm-hmm. The detachment was was very it was it was instant mm-hmm. for me you are a science experiment to me mm-hmm. you are something that's going to help me get to the bottom of what happened you're another piece of that puzzle right so i was able to detach myself i always found autopsies very almost fascinating yeah. and i know i know they're 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 wicked and they're cruel because <clears throat> it's a slab of meat yeah. at that point yeah but when they cut it open and you know, going to the gym my whole life and being an athlete, the things that I've only read about, I got to see in living color. It always fascinated me. Mm-hmm. But I imagine it did something to the back of my head. There's mm-hmm. just no way that it, it can't. You know, I always said you have to be like a chameleon. You know, you have to change your colors for every, you know, every. You're investigated, investigated in a homicide or something. You're talking to the family. You got to be this person. 
when you go to the scene, you got to be a different person. You, you just have to keep changing your colors and go through the whole thing because there, there's different factions of it. Right. You have to be sympathetic when you're with the family. Mm-hmm. You have to be professional when you're with the scene. Mm-hmm. You had made a comment to me that sort of goes along with that. And it's like being unplugged from the matrix and then yeah. trying to plug back in. Absolutely. Explain That's- that one. Because it was profound as hell. So when I say that being in law enforcement in general, but especially in homicide, is like being unplugged from the Matrix. Okay, so I don't know if if I'm sure y'all have seen the movie The Matrix, right? While while you're inside of the Matrix, everything is beautiful. You know, you see the city streets, you smell the smells of everything. You know, you can come and hug your kids and and love on your kids. But when you're unplugged from the Matrix, you see how things really are. And it's it, it's a drastic change from the society that you knew while you were inside. Being in law enforcement for me, seeing what I saw as a homicide investigator was like being unplugged from the matrix. You 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 really get a, an opportunity to see the worst of the worst. You see what everybody reads about. Exactly, their worst nightmares. Mm-hmm. But well, they, I say all the time, like when when people call nine one one, you know. You know, some of the guys said, oh, another 911 call, you know, that is the most important person, the the most important thing in that person's life at that point. Absolutely. They called, when you get there, treat it like it's the most important thing in your life. Absolutely. When you leave there, you can say, what a fucking idiot that was, you know, right? whatever whatever you want to say. But that's the most important thing going on in their life. And that's what you're getting paid for is to treat these people in the most important part of their life. You know who treats you well? And I have to throw this out because Chris and I were just there today. Three acres. Three acres. Three acres at 400 Claremont Avenue in Jersey City. What a beautiful establishment there. The people are wonderful. So go to threeacresjc.com. Uh, three you got to check out what these people have. And we always like to support the people who support our show. Absolutely. Um, but then eventually at some point, Chris, you got to plug back into the matrix because mm-hmm. you got to go home. You right. got a wife. You got family. Right. You got relatives you got cousins your mother mm-hmm. so how did you do that man it, it it took me years it took me years to to really understand what that meant you, you <laughs> y'all remember the training that they gave us in 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 the, in the academy and especially when you go to homicide they tell you don't take this home don't don't take it home yeah right you, easier said than do done you do that you can't do that it's it's almost impossible to do RoboCop can. Yeah, RoboCop can, right. But <laughs> you like, get you get that question when you come home from either your wife or a significant other. How was your day? Well, you know the you funny thing right. about I RoboCop. I just saw a dead body. You know, <laughs> right. what do you, how, how do you, you think my day was? If you watch that movie RoboCop, mm-hmm. even RoboCop had, had, visions of, had visions of the past. <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. And mm-hmm. that's so that movie was what it was. You know, uh-huh. it was a high action thriller, but there's more to that movie than it's right. the eye. That's right. You can plug somebody, you can unplug somebody from the Matrix. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you can't totally. Un- right. It, it was hard for me those first couple of years, you know, and and I took it. I took don't take this home to mean don't talk to your family about what you saw. So I didn't. I didn't talk. My, my wife would ask me all the time. How was your day? It was a day. Kids will come up to you and, you know, you just walk through, you know, two houses, four or five houses of, of dead bodies, you know what I'm saying? Four or five dead rooms of dead bodies. You know, you're pulling the dead gum, you know, foot the covers off, off of your for a Tyvek suit off and, you know, and, and, and you come home and you're expected to be dead. 
dad you're expected to husband. be husband you know it was hard for me so i you know i didn't want to i didn't want to burden my wife and my kids with what i was going through thinking that they would never understand and thinking to some extent would, that's true right that's true but still you you need to get that out you you got to talk to somebody you know i mean us as alpha males we eat our feelings we never want to show weakness you know Absolutely. you don't want to show that something bothered you and worked mm-hmm. that day you know yeah yeah man Completely understand. So that's that's why I think for that first almost year or so, I suffered through, you know, not knowing how to get those feelings out, not knowing what to do. And the only way I could do it was, you know, I, I drank a lot. We, we call it filling the glass, right? Yeah, fill it up. Yeah. But he filled it with bourbon. I filled mine with bourbon. It was <laughs> keep, a lot Keep of filling it. that glass. Sooner or later, it's going to spill over. That's right. You know, mm-hmm. and you, you got to get some kind of help for that. And yeah. a, a lot of us in law enforcement, tend to go to alcohol because mm-hmm. it's legal right? And, and it's easy. It's easy to get. And you don't want to go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist because mm-hmm. then you're going to be that, that person that has mental issues and everything else. And when you think about it, how, how much does a bottle of alcohol cost in ref in, versus going to a psychologist? $300 an hour versus $50, 50 an hour. Bucks, I give me a bottle, you know, or two or three bottles, <laughs> you know, depends so, on what your tastes are. Yeah, exactly. But that, that right there shows the humanity behind police work. Mm-hmm. And that's something that it's very easy to forget when the boys in blue show up or the boys in the, the homicides. The, you know, the, the DB always had to wear suits. So it's just, I'm like, <laughs> I always pitied everybody in the DB for having to wear suits. Dude, you got you to gotta go back and look at some of my suits because I was a pretty snappy dresser. <laughs> <laughs> You know that that was part that was part of the record. You had to be able to dress when you go to homicide because it, it was know, a competition. It really? was a competition. That's right, man. Yeah, See, we had we had two shifts when we were in the bureau. We had the the eight to four shift and three to eleven, and then after eleven and homicide working no, homicide. We, oh, okay, okay, okay. All right, my town's a square mile. We didn't have too many homicides, <laughs> so the day shift had to wear suits. Right, three to eleven could come in, you know, dress down a little bit, you know, golf shirt. There's a switch all the time. Three to eleven. I ain't wearing a suit. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing it. I, I'm not a suit and tie guy. I don't. I just don't understand how. I mean, I know we had to do it. I know there are some departments out there that are not that large, and they have to, you know, swap out shift. And, and, and I just, I don't know how you. Well, and plus, I come from a department where we had way more homicides than than what we probably should have had. But there was no. There'd be no way I could work a homicide that's been handed down from another investigator or started off 24 hours after the homicide happened. There's no way I could do that. I would be shitting bricks when I got into that case. You got to be there from the get go. You got to be there. Right You got to be out on the crime scene. You got to see what's happening. You got to feel what's happening in in those streets in order to solve a homicide. It's, It's not just go and pick up the evidence, go to the autopsy, talk to a few people. No, it is a feeling. It is way deeper than what a lot of people understand. Well, I mean, that's what I was saying. Getting back to the social media question, you know, that we had two people hit by a car. I didn't catch the case until like two days later. Ooh. Like, you know, no, well, no, you thank know. you. <laughs> hey, hey, thanks. You know, <laughs> no. Here it's going to be yours. You know, I wasn't there when you know the, the accident. You know, the, the accident reconstruction was there. I wasn't there with a the patrol motor. No, I knew nothing about it. Mm-mm. No, no, I don't want no part. Hence, henceforth, it was never solved. Well, it, you know, I, I think the suit idea, if I had to guess, is a lot to do with constructive authority. You Absolutely. Know? So you go, look at 
look at a cop who really is squared away, mm-hmm. takes care of their uniform, shines their shoes. And that, that was me. And I know that was you as well, mm-hmm. because that makes, that allows me to arrive on scene mm-hmm. and automatically my presence is there. Right. All right. It's just one less hurdle you got to go over. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming with your suit and mm-hmm. if you're well-dressed and you're well-presented, People are going to say, "Okay, now they're calling the cavalry in." Right, absolutely. It, it, there's a different, there's a different uh, feeling, almost. There's a different. You, you're looked at way different than if you're a sloppy cat with you know half your shirt untucked and you know kind of like I'm looking right now. <laughs> no, the, the donut stains, <laughs> donut on your stains shirt. on your shirt. Right? Yeah, yeah. I it's, mean, it's, especially showing up at six five. Right, right. Like, this guy's in charge. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> You know, so so yeah, we we always had to be keep stay squared away, man. I, that was one thing that uh, you know, the guys on my team, the guys that I work with, we all took pride in our appearance. So whenever we could get in and work out and or run or do something together, you know, even go and play golf, we would always do that. It was a great team. It was a great camaraderie. What you see on first forty eight. That was that that was us. That wasn't acting. We we didn't have scripts and lines and all that other stuff. No. That was us as a unit, as a team. All of us wanted to be there for each other because we spent more time with each other than most of us spent with our own families. Now how did how did you get approached? You got approached while you were an active detective or detective sergeant to do first forty eight. Like how how's that happen? So it wasn't like they, they approached me. It was I was a, 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 I was a, I think I had only been in homicide then for about a year, but I got there because I had solved a homicide and that's all in my book, the case, the, the way I've made my, you got to get trans- us a link to that so we can put it in the show notes. Absolutely. Uh, the way that I, I transitioned into the detective bureau was because I solved a homicide case before I was a homicide detective. They had moved me over to, 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 as an investigator for homicide. I was just coming learning my getting my feet up under me, understanding, you know, that you're gonna have to put the bottle down, you're gonna have to stop drinking. And boom, we get this, you know, they they tell us that, hey, we uh we signed a contract, you know, y'all gonna have some camera crews following y'all. We didn't know I, I had watched first forty eight, but you know, I, I didn't really, you know, your department show. your department did it. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, that, that's that's the only way they get in. None of the guys that are on first forty eight get paid or they're not they're not paid investigators. They they may you know, I don't know what they do. I know they bought us some equipment, things of that nature, but it's it's not a it's not a gig. So at any rate I'm sure that's how the show cops is too. Right. Cops is the same way. Actually, I knew I knew somebody on Cops, the the guy from Patterson, Passaic County Sheriff. Passaic County, yeah, the guys and so the the, the guy, mind. the guy, yeah, he's 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 nuts. Mm-hmm. So the guy in the back of the seat calls him. I don't think it was on the show, but it was on another call that I was on with him. He says, "Hey, essay, what are you doing?" He goes, Did "You just call me a fucking book report." I swear. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? uh, yeah, it was, it was. That guy was out of his mind. But yeah. um, th- those TV shows, because. People look, people watch those TV shows and they think, okay, this is scripted. This right. isn't real. Mm-hmm. And But ev- you're telling me everything is 100%. So, yes and no. So there are a, a few things that are not uh, – that are, are scripted. Uh, just to tie the story in. Everything that you see on the crime scenes, everything that you see when they're interrogating people, uh, everything that you see when they're out talking to witnesses – that's all real. It, when they first arrive on the scene and the, the investigators are walking into the front door, unless they've changed things. I know for all of our cases, that was all real. 
the storyline is where they have to kind of recreate things. Like I had a case that was uh, uh, one of my cases on on First Forty Eight, where a guy had uh, he blamed the homicide on his mother, right? And I was telling Kev about this a little bit earlier. They've been uh, the First Forty Eight have been trying to get my mom to to do something on the show, you know, anything, you know, just a soundbite or something. And my mom's an old school cop. Old school cops. We don't we don't get on we don't, TV. We don't talk. We won't talk to nobody. You know what I'm saying? It's like the mafia. <laughs> right. Yeah. We don't we, say nothing. We don't but, say nothing. But, you taking pictures, we moving. You know? but, but again, moving in today, every cop's talking, every gangster's everybody, talking, everybody's, everybody's talking. Everybody's talking now. So yeah, uh so that was a, a case which I'm so glad. I thank God that my mom did this. She she finally decided that she was gonna do it. Now that scene was created. I'm not going to say how you can tell. I'll do that on my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> when you have your mother on your podcast, right, you when, stole when her I, idea. When I have my mom. No, but, uh, <laughs> Look how you turned out. <laughs> <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, so my mom is, 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 was, was always my, my greatest inspiration when it came to police work, man. She, she just, and she's still like that now, even in her seventies, you know, she's still a cop. She's still, She'll ask me, well, what did you do when, you know, you had this officer do this? You know, you know, you're supposed to do this, this, this and this. It's just like it's, it's that's, that's our motherly son talk. So anyway, getting back to the story. But, yeah, he he uh, they recreated that entire scene. So it's 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 things to help tie the storyline in together that are recreated. But everything else is real. While you were on that show or or your second show, Reasonable Doubt. Mm-hmm. I want to know this, because I've done this before. <laughs> when you know a camera's on you, mm-hmm. did you ever give that deep, introspective look on purpose? No. See, yeah. I've done that on, <laughs> on accident scenes, where I'll, I'll, lay, I'll, I'll crouch down and I'm doing this, because I know the news is over there looking at me. And <laughs> right. Dude, so, okay. So let me, let me tell you about Reasonable Doubt. Now, uh, it took about four or five episodes in that they realized that Chris makes that I don't have a poker face. I don't. I, and I know that. So I'll, I'll read, I'll tell everything. You can look, you can tell my, by my facial expressions. If you tell me some bullshit, I'm going to be like, you know, that's some bullshit. I've, this is my facial expression. I've actually seen you on reasonable doubt. Look at the guy go. Yeah, exactly. So what they started doing was we would have a special camera. It was the Chris's facial expression <laughs> camera, and they would just set it up there, and they would record all. It would they would put it on my face, and they would record everything that I did, and then they would cut it in and edit it in when you know they to, to give it some context. How how is Detective Anderson's feeling? Well, look at his face. He says that's bullshit. <laughs> so so yeah, but uh, for for first forty eight, they didn't do it as much, but for reasonable doubt, definitely. And you know, and I, I know a lot of the people that watch RD. They could tell it. I, I don't have a poker face. And when, I, when, when I was working for the uh, the sheriff's department, we were doing the, what they call the dirty daddy raids, you know, oh, yeah, child yeah, support yeah. raids. Oh, you know. no, no, no. They, this isn't about the football players. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to get into that. No, please don't. But they, they had all these dirty daddy raids, and we had a brand new sheriff, and he was trying to make a big name for himself. He gets the local TV crew to come follow us and everything. We're going to the houses, locking people up. We bring him back to the jail and we're standing outside and the sheriff is actually giving an interview and he, he comes up and he goes, Mike, I want you to stand behind me, you know, for the interview. I'm like, I, don't know. I was chewing tobacco back then. So I had a 
big <laughs> dip in my lip, and I'm just at oh, God. All of a sudden, the cameras turned to me, and they asked me a question. I had to swallow a whole fucking <laughs> oh. mouthful, mouthful of fucking chewing tobacco spit. Got got through the got through the interview. I went up and like threw up between the fuck. <laughs> when you were when you were working those homicides, when you were working those tough cases, mm-hmm. was humor ever some something that you guys threw in? Not in front of the victims, Absolutely family, never. not. But just to sort of ease the tension because people don't realize that that's how we ease tension. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Uh... Especially the crew at First 48. They had gotten so jaded, uh, you know, by being, you know, going with us and being on these crime scenes. You know, look, so there is a, uh, we we always threw in humor. Yeah. Always. But it got to the point where they started throwing in humor. I remember one night, uh, myself and my partner, Jerry Williams, we were both, uh, we had been out. It, it, we were going into our 36 hours, 36th hour of being out working the homicide. I mean, we just kept getting. And you only got out. 12 more and then the show's over. <laughs> right. I know. Right. <laughs> so we had been into our 36th hour and then we got a high case where a, a young lady had been murdered and her. Uh, we couldn't find her son. So we were back rolling again. We got back to the office and sat down and. I was just, we were just having our, our, our talk through of what we needed to do the following day. We were about to get ready to go home. We were going through our talk through. They had brought me a Coke to help, you know, help hopefully the caffeine to get me going again. And by the time we started off and, and started taking notes, both of us had passed out. <laughs> we sitting up there just, just knocked out. And they are just snapping picture after picture after picture of both of us knocked out at our desk. And then they posted it on on social media. You know, the homicide detectives at yeah. hard at work. W- working real hard. Working yeah. real hard. And we just knocked out. So, so yeah, I thought it was funny. It was hilarious to me, you know. But, you know, my, of course, my chief of police didn't think it was funny at all. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, but that's how we get through these things. You do. Humor gets you through it. You do. If, if you don't laugh at it. I mean, mm-hmm. we talk about it all the time. And. And like I said, that that's what this podcast is all about. I'm the one that makes the stupid jokes when shit gets deep, you know? Right, right, right. Because it, life gets deep at sometimes. If you mm-hmm. don't laugh, even if laughing at yourself, I'm not saying it's right to laugh at a victim of a crime. But you're not. But we're not. We're you're laughing not. about. It's a release. Yeah. Right. A, a situation. Mm-hmm. Not Absolutely. at a person. You know, mm-hmm. you, you're seeing people at their worst. And regardless of what everybody thinks, there's nobody that dies stoically famous last word like john wayne on tv like Mm -hmm. oh it's been a good life no it's usually yelling screaming crying shit Mm -hmm. and pissing their pants yeah yeah on the toilet on Mm -hmm. the toilet yeah and and (laughs) you're seeing that the the inhumanity that they're experiencing right now because Mm -hmm. you do lose all sorts of humanity you do there was a, a young social worker i've told this story before but there was a young social worker that was a friend of my wife's and she's like no we can she we can have people die with dignity. I'm like, I'm telling you, there's really no dignity in the life. Very mm-hmm. small percentage ever get that luxury. And three, four years go by and she moves away, but she came back and she's visiting with us. And she goes, she looks at me and goes, you know what? You're right. Yeah. So he's damn right. Yeah. yeah. I've seen a lot of dead people and they've never been like this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Smi- I don't think I've ever seen a dead person smile. I've seen a <laughs> lot of, a lot of naked old people. Yeah. All right. I've seen people just at their worst moments crying, mm-hmm. screaming, yelling for whatever God they worship. Yeah. Even if they don't worship, they're trying to yell for somebody. Mm-hmm. It, it's a it's a rotten situation. And I mean, when, when you see someone take their last breath. Oh, yeah. How do you shut that off? 
You, you can't. You don't. Yeah, you, you can't. You gotta. You either gotta, like you said, fall into the bottle or mm-hmm. joke about it, laugh about it, do something. What finally got you through, though? What finally got you through to open yourself up? Because um, it doesn't seem like you still have that ton of bricks on your back. I don't, man. I, I don't. I, and I, I don't. It, it took me. It took me years to to, to figure it out. And that, and that was really it. Detaching myself away from the the human side, especially on the crime scenes, I had to. I mean, I, I couldn't look at this this little this person as Johnny. I had to look at him as evidence. Now, there's no way you can get around the the human emotion when you're going and delivering that that message that your your, your loved one is not coming home. There's no way, and you shouldn't. You, you you really should feel that pain because it helps motivate me, knowing that okay, it's my responsibility to bring these folks justice. That's what pushed me through to work the cases, but and and it made it just made things easier for me. That was the only way I knew to do it. Well, did you finally talk to somebody? Did you finally seek? Oh, help? absolutely! Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. That so after um, after maybe that first year of being in homicide, that's when you know my wife finally said, you know, look, you got to do something. You got to either get some help or I'm out of here or I'm out of here. <laughs> I can't do this. I can't put this because I had two young kids, man. I had my one. And that was the mistake that I made. This is another thing that we talked about off camera. I stayed in homicide too long and I went while I was too young in as, as a family man. Having my kids, I, I can't remember a lot of times with my kids. I don't. I, there was a lot of that life that I missed. And what I did was I made my wife. A single wife, she because mm-hmm. she had to pull. She had to pull the weight. Now I got a, I got a strong woman, man. She is a an extremely strong woman because she told all of it. What's her be, bench press? No, I'm <laughs> it's, it's three hundred and twenty pounds. She, <laughs> <laughs> she bench press you right off she the bench. Bench press me right now. That was the greatest <laughs> answer I've ever Get heard. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> no, man, but you know she 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 was she had to. She had to to do all of it. And plus, she was in school, too, working full time, two small kids, helping them out with homework, making sure they were getting to their sporting events and doing all the other things that a mom should do, plus doing her own homework and, and things like and that. And trying to take care of a guy who's mentally broken. And right. I was going to say, you know, two small kids and having another kid because yeah. you're really a kid at that point. Absolutely. I mean, how many times do you just drift off in thought? about a case that you're working, thinking about what you got to do the next day. And, and you're really not, you're a shell of who you are. You're not, you're not the father. You're not the husband because your mind is somewhere else. Dude, I, I, I swear. It's almost like you read a chapter of the case and it's gonna, it, there's going to be a, a, a rendition of it, it with our book, Kevin. I Which mean, is, we, we haven't it. even mentioned it. We haven't mentioned it. It's I'm man, not, man, you are crazy. Man, so, you are crazy. We, we still got, we got, time left we could spend a you know whole half hour <laughs> promoting your book but but yeah so uh, i mean I, I talk a lot about it man there have been plenty of times where my wife would be just holding holding conversations real real conversations with me and i'm at work or i'm going back through my case file and figuring out what even though i'm sitting at the dinner table i'm going back through my case file figuring out what i need to do the following day plenty of times that that has happened or like even just watching you're sitting on the couch with the family watching tv Right. You're seeing the screen, uh-huh. but you're not grasping what's going on there. Mm-mm. No, it's background noise. Oh, yeah. 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 That's that's all it is. And, you know, having my kids, my kids jumping up and down on me, uh, uh, my son walking up to me and telling me something, what's going on in school. And, 
and I'm not answering because I'm really he I'm here in body, but in mind. I'm still at work. You're on the scene. Right. Absolutely. Well, that was one of the things that after I finally retired and got through my <clears throat> stuff that I swore up and down to myself that I was going to be that person who was always there. And I, as busy as my schedule is right now, I make sure that, you know, I coach mm-hmm. them. Yeah. I make sure I check on them, make sure that I, I, I'm involved in their life because as, a, and even though my kids were very, very young, there's still a lot of stuff that I missed and it mm-hmm. really bothered me. Right. It really, I mean, it, it wasn't so much while I was working. It was after my shooting that I really just detached from from my family. And, you know, that's time you can never get back. Yeah. So what do you do? You can't fix the past. You can't unring that bell. What can you do? Move forward. So Yeah. So I had to have a lot of long, deep conversations with my kids. Uh, and, and, and thankfully, they will understand a lot of long, deep conversations with my wife. And she, she finally, she, she understood it. She understood it. That's the reason why we're still together now. Uh, I think because she, 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 she gets it. She understand who she understands who I am. She understands what what you went through, what I went through, or what we went through, and she fought through it. You know, so there, there are a lot of cops and, and with ex wives that that couldn't do it. You know, uh, I'm not going to mention names, but I know I know an ex cop that uh, his wife had no clue. Mm-hmm. You know, and really didn't care and she just say like why don't you just snap out of it yeah you can't snap out of it yeah Yeah. you can't snap out of it uh those are the true so the people who are trying to understand they're trying their best to understand they're the unsung heroes of police work whether it's male or female Mm -hmm. you know it it, i think in this world we live in right now that you know i'd like to talk to a a male spouse of a female cop or you know whatever to find out how they're Getting information. Females are usually pr- a little bit better at talking about the stuff. I, I think so. I think my, my my mother and father were a perfect example of that. My mom would always come home and, and talk to my dad. You know, when when um when when things got rough for her at work, I remember a lot of those conversations. You know, but it's different when when it's men. You know, it's, it we we've been we've been. Programmed, programmed, right. programmed. To, We've been programmed yeah. to to not bring this home. You can't cry. You can't talk well, about it. Show emotion. Yeah, right. Uh, right. Throw some dirt on it. Get back out there. Go back to work. Put some tape on there and get back in the game. Kid. Right. Right. But I, I think that talking about it and therapy and 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 being able to be transparent has been it's been key for me. I know. I can't. Has that happened in in your new life as a as with reasonable doubt and crime and cookie juice? Your new your podcast with Fatima Silva. How has that helped you work through a lot of that stuff as well? Yeah, I, I think that um, I think that that has been kind of that catharsis that you need in order to get some of this stuff out. That's what this is. Yeah, you you have to be able to talk about it to to people that under that really really truly understand where you won't feel judged, where you won't feel uh, like. Like you're lesser of a person. You're lesser of a, exactly. Like you're less of a person by releasing it. You know, one thing that I love about my partner, my partner Fatima Silva is my that is my ace. That's my ace. We she's always prying and pushing and trying to get you to talk. That first year we were working she's together. She's a defense attorney. She's a expect? defense attorney, right? Right. But I think she's more of a psychologist. I think her her because she 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 does ask the unqu- un 
uncomfortable questions. So our first year working together, you know how we are. We don't want to. I still, I'm still a cop now. Let's let's be honest. I'm still a cop. I still don't want to talk to everybody. I mean, I'm not gonna release everything. But she's one of those ones that'll keep pushing. And one day that we, I remember a couple of times that we've had conversations where she just kind of poked and pride and poked and pride, and I finally started releasing to her. And even though after the conversation, she was like. <laughs> you know, this is her facial hair. Like, okay, I didn't. She wasn't expecting that, but you know, look. I mean, you asked. I'm telling. But I think it's made it more. That made us us more comfortable with each other. I think I've come to the realization. I think Mike has as well that nobody is ever going to be able to judge me as harshly as I judged myself. Absolutely. And once you get to that point, it's pretty easy to let stuff go and let mm-hmm. and let loose. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to say you still don't have your moments. I'm sure mm-hmm. you still have your yeah. moments of of just introspection of dealing with some of the bad things going on, but it's that I'm not afraid anymore. Mm-hmm. And before, I think that's getting down to the crux of it, trying to wrap all this stuff up. It's the fear of seeming like less. And this is a man thing. Mm-hmm. Let's make this very clear. Like this is a alpha, alpha male syndrome. Absolutely. Seeming like less of a man, mm-hmm. seeming like you're just, you're not as tough as everybody else. Cause you're looking at everybody else around you, and unfortunately, they're they're probably feeling the same thing you're feeling, but they're not talking about it either. And now you got instead of one unhealthy person, you got a group of unhealthy people. Right, 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 right. And then that that goes back to man that you could trace that back to growing up, even even before we were cops. Because I know my dad, my dad, my dad was not the the father to have if you were a kind of feminine or a, a sensitive type boy. He had three boys that he raised it from the 70s all the way up through the 80s and 90s and that didn't get in trouble, that were always respectful, and they were almost twice his size. <laughs> you know, so. But so, you know he'd kick your but, ass But no I know he would kick my ass, yeah. So, so you know, and I tried. I got to, I, you know, I wish I could take a lesson from your father because my son's almost taller than me, and I, there's going to be a time when I'm going to. I always got to keep that competitive edge. You, you yeah, got to kick his ass down. You got yeah. Just, just, just for I, bully, I bully him now. To just try just it. for GP. Just just go in there, kick his ass, and I. This is just for the future when you may want to think about whipping my ass. You remember this day. My father. My father used to just like walk by me and smack me and say, "You didn't do anything wrong. Just imagine what I'm going to do to you if you do do something wrong." I, Right. But you know, look, I, I got to say this because somebody, yeah, with somebody, we were talking with, I can't even remember all the people. Like Kevin has introduced me to almost everybody in, in New Jersey today. So I just want y'all to know that I've met a lot of people and I can't even remember everybody that we talked to. But somebody talked to me and they were saying how different kids are. The guy that we met at the pizza place today. Oh, uh, Mark. 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 Mark was telling me about how different, you know, raising kids are. And he, he was talking about it. I'm like, yeah, that's. That's right. They're a little bit different. We have to take a different approach than what we were we were privy to as growing up as kids. So, but there were some benefits to us growing up. Absolutely, and, absolutely. And, and I, I, I try to work that in right. as well by but being kinder, gentler, a little softer. Right, right, right. So yeah, that, and that's one thing that I, I, you know, after my son, I think my son was probably about fourteen or fifteen years old when I got promoted and we got to really start spending a, a lot of quality time together uh, outside of, you know, Saturday morning, get up, go get your haircut with me. And then I'll take you back home to your mom. And, and then I'll probably end up going to work or doing whatever. So uh, after my son, you know, my son became a teenager. He's, a, he's almost my height now. 
and we started spending a lot of quality time together and just talking. And, and it was, you know, it was a breakthrough for us when I told him, you know, kind of start laying out why I do what I do. And, and, and why you're feeling what you're feeling at certain I, points. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that was, uh, that was huge for him. And now he's a father. Uh, as a matter of fact, this is my granddaughter's, my third granddaughter's uh, seventh day of being here. <laughs> See, Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a new grandfather for the third, for the third time. time. Yeah. It's funny you said that because I did something with my son. I don't even know if I told you this. I did something with my son recently. I took him. We just, I'd never been back to the scene of my shooting. I mm. never went back there. I never looked at it. I couldn't. I couldn't do it. I think I drove near it once trying to go back there and I couldn't do it. One day my son's in the car. I'm like, hey, let's go for a ride. And before I know it, without looking up, I find myself on the road and there's a, there's a little back, because it was in a townhouse complex, there's a little back road there. And I pointed out, I'm like, that's where it happened right there. And he saw, he saw the, the close quarters that, that it happened mm-hmm. in. And he knew I was in a shooting. He doesn't know the entire details, but he at, at 13, he knows a little bit more each day. And when he looked at it, he goes, wow, that, that's, that's really small. And yeah. I go, yeah, it's, it's, that's what I'm it – was, it was bad. So now, now he's got the big picture of right. everything that you've been right. talking about. Right. So what I'm trying to say with that is, is us holding it in, mm-hmm. has it really worked? I, I don't know. It, it, it's not work. It's not the way that you should do it. And I'm glad you brought that up because I did the exact same thing. I know you've read the read the first portions of, of Man, You're Crazy that I wrote. And I submitted to Kevin and I always bouncing ideas off of each other. I wanted him to read the first portion of the book. I talk about an incident where I had um, where a guy that I had. I'm, I'm trying to put this in the ni- as nice a way as possible. Had I been in a, 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 the guy that I am today, he would not be alive. You know, and I had a situation. Okay. So I'm, I'm riding down the street and this is, this will be in the book. I'm riding down the street and I see this guy, he's pointing the SKS rifle at, at this group of people that are standing on the sidewalk. I recognize these folks because they are, this is, this is my beat. I know everybody on my beat. I see him. I see my 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 neighbors, the guys that are living that the, the people that live in my neighborhood, and he's pointing an SKS rifle with him. I'm a rookie cop. Now I don't know if y'all did this when y'all first came through the academy, but when we can't first come out, they give you a 38 revolver. No, we not no no we, we really? yeah no, I, had, I had a Glock. So no. no, we couldn't do that for your first year. You had to carry a 38 oh. revolver. Oh, it wasn't the time. It was just that's what you had to carry. That's what you had to carry. Wow. Yeah, you had to go through a transition school before you could be a, a, a carry an automatic weapon. But they issued you a 38 revolver. So I jump out. I see this guy with this SKS rifle. He's got a long 30 round clip or whatever and then it's hanging out it's a banana clip so I know it was 30 rounds maybe you know he's pointing at them and the first thing I do is what you get out of the car you point your weapon at him this dude takes off running now I'm just I'm a rookie so I'm thinking I can't shoot him in the back I can't shoot him I, I just just chase him down you know so I'm running behind him he turns around points his weapon at me so what's the first thing that you think to do grab some cover 
and then you fire. Because I know I'm not going up against the SK. I'm not going to win this battle. But I, I can't not do anything. I can't just sit in the car and call for backup, chase him and start chasing him again. That happened twice. The next time he did it, now he's standing back in front of the people that were that, that he was pointing a weapon at. So I couldn't shoot at him then. At any rate, I chased him down. Uh, I, I, I no, I let him go. And I knew he wasn't going to run that far because, like, I'm, I'm, I'm 21 years old. He's in his 40s. He just got out of prison not too long ago. He's way overweight. I ended up catching him and recovering the weapon and uh, taking him into custody. When I get back to the car, putting him in the car, now backup's arriving, and they go back and recover the weapon. They find out that the SKS rifle had a stovepipe. Mm. The, the, yeah, so it, it couldn't recycle. It couldn't right, recycle, right? So P, P, let's explain what a stovepipe is. When when the, when the bullet recycles, the shell re- recycles out of out of the the receiver, it'll stand upright and jam the weapon. Kind of yeah. like this. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so so the weapon was jammed. Now, it wasn't until after I got this joker into custody that I realized how traumatized I was. I mean, because I'm running off a of straight adren- adrenaline. And I'm and I'm 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 able to think a little bit, but I didn't realize it. And then, you know He tried it, to kill you. He he tried to kill me. And I would have been, and he would have successfully done it had it not been because, you know, stovepipe saved your life. Stovepipe saved my life. I I always said it is God. God has always had his arms around me. I mean, he's had so many angels around me because there are so many, there have been so many times where I probably shouldn't have made it. You know, it's amazing too. Unless you're in law enforcement, they don't know the adrenaline kicks in, Mm -hmm. right? And now your heart's beating, right? You're in a foot pursuit. Mm Mm-hmm. So now your adrenaline is up, you're breathing heavy, and it's like, well, why didn't you shoot him then? And, shoot, and, shoot him in the leg. And yeah. that is the yeah. question. Why didn't you shoot the gun out of his hand? That That is the question that really just, it's like raking fingernails across a chalkboard for me. Hmm. For years, it, it, it hurt me to say it because, look, I have always questioned that incident helped is is what made me question whether or not I should be in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. I almost quit because, you know, why didn't you shoot him? Why why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Those are the questions that ring in your mind. All the while you're thinking about, you almost died. It would have been a closed casket funeral had one or two of those bullets connected. So that's one of the things that, that, and it, and it, it followed me throughout my most of my career. Sure, it still follows you today. Today, it, it, it pisses Absolutely. me. It pisses me off because that was the one question that everybody, the same fuckers that did not come out there and help me, were asking me this question: Why didn't you shoot him? I got a fucking thirty-eight. The guys that were sitting in the office in headquarters while right. you were out while on the I street was out there. said, "Oh, why, why didn't, didn't you, you shoot, shoot him? him? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you get off your ass and fucking back me up?" Right. So, so, yeah. So, Chris, you know, we're coming to the end of this thing, and I want to find out where can our audience find you? So, I am on all social media uh, Facebook at Detective Chris Anderson, Instagram at Detective Christopher Anderson, and I'm on Twitter at DET C Anderson. I don't do Twitter that much. I'm, it's we're, just, we got Twitter as well. I, it, it, it rarely gets filled. Yeah. So, but Instagram, I am all over Instagram, I'm all over Facebook. Uh, and, and plus you can find us, um, our 
Instagram, we have an Instagram account for Crime and Cookie Juice Podcast where, you know, Fatima Silva and I, we talk we we talk a little bit about bourbon because, you know, look, that is I, I still have a taste for bourbon. I don't drink nearly as much as I used to, but for the Crime and Cookie Juice Podcast, I will drink. But you don't care. As, as we're coming to the end of this, I got a question for you and Chris. Tell us about your book. <laughs> well, the book is called Man, You Are Crazy. So mm-hmm. if you go to manyourcrazy.com, it's also on social media, Man, You Are Crazy book on Instagram, Man, You Are Crazy on TikTok. Man, You Are, yeah, it's Man, You Are Crazy on TikTok. And we have some exciting things. We're going to, we're, we're teetering. Hopefully next Friday we'll have a, a little better announcement for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, getting somebody involved in the project who is, who is quite, quite large um his name doesn't rhyme with mike felice does it (laughs) (laughs) it's oh you're right it's schmike malace (laughs) it's fike malace so (laughs) this book is this book is a labor of love you know i i when we first connected on this thing i had had a good portion of this stuff written so i don't think i wrote it so fast i don't think i so i had a good portion of it written i had to rework it because it was written like a police report Mm -hmm. and you know I did this and I did this and I did this and then, then this happened. So I had to rework it a little bit, but it's really a labor of love and it's really a cathartic thing to get all this stuff out. Cause as I'm writing this book, even doing this show where I let a lot of stuff out, new stuff started coming out. Yeah. New stuff just started raising up. Like I, you know, I, I, I spent time in a, in a mental institution cause I took a bunch of Klonopin and just washed it down with a bunch of alcohol and my wife called the police on me and that's something I didn't for, I, I just didn't remember right. um, but I don't know for me it's cathartic I can't speak for you Chris no it is um, I think the writing of it has caused me to tap into some areas where I thought I had done away with I thought I had pushed you know had, had been pushed away so deep but they, they're still there, man. You, you see, I, I, I felt my, myself get a little bit heated when I when you, you say, why did you shoot him? Because it's still there, man. It, it, so I, I talk about that incident and I talk about several other incidents because after I put that joke in jail, he still came back into my life. The story of the prairie fire will be in there. Just so you know. Go for it. Just so you know. Episode nine, too. <laughs> Chris, we're... But what, what, what I say all the time is... Everything you do goes into the hard drive of your brain. Mm-hmm. You know, hard drive on a computer, everything stays in there. Mm-hmm. It's when you tap into that hard drive, when yeah. something initiates that hard drive to keep moving, other thoughts are going to come up, other scenarios are going to come up, and you, know, you got to learn to suppress those those yeah. feelings when it comes down to it. All you can do is just keep moving forward. One of my favorite quotes is from Gladiator. Mm-hmm. In the beginning of this, very beginning of the movie, before the battle scene, it says, what, what we do in life echoes in eternity. Right. Because what you what you did in, as a homicide detective, what you're doing now, it is always going to echo in eternity. Mm-hmm. So as we're coming to the end of this thing here, you spent this storied career as a detective. You've seen all these different things. You've seen the worst and the worst in, human, in humanity. What do you think your suffering has taught you? Man, that's a deep question. My suffering has taught me how to be a much better husband a much better father and a much better man. A much better person. Yeah. Along the lines, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm certainly glad I know you, Chris. And I'm glad I know you too, I'm, KD. I really am glad. Mike, well, you know, not so much. 
<laughs> I'm just in here. Mike, Mike is always my brother. Yeah, right. He will forever be my brother to the day I die. And, yeah. you know, from the day, from day one that we connected, I love him dearly. If yeah. I would have known Chris was, you know, never had Taylor Ham before, I would have brought some up. <laughs> How about spam? Do you ever have spam before? Absolutely. There you go. Is that what it is? Is that no. Taylor Ham? No. It, no. That's no. Another, that's that's all, spam, spam is sort of an inside, inside joke. So I mean, try, we have a bunch right. of inside jokes like, uh, <laughs> who's a better singer, Frank Sinatra or Elvis Presley? You know, oh, just, just stop, just, just please answer. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm from the south, okay. So, look, I've never listened to any of those dudes for real, so <laughs> I can't make that uh, a determination. <laughs> Neither one of those guys are in my playlist. We okay, sit, so, we sit on the opposite ends of the field. <laughs> so, so, Andrew, right now it's two one one. It's uh, Frank Sinatra two, Elvis Presley one, and Chris says he's he's. Tied. That's all right. I'll spend some more time with Chris, and we'll, we'll yeah. By the time you go back to Alabama, you're going to love Elvis. <laughs> no, really? Southern boy doesn't like another Southern boy. Come on, Memphis, dude. Tennessee. Come I don't on. know if we have a lot to uh, in common. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for this episode of the Suffering Podcast, the Suffering of, detect- of a Detective with Detective Chris Anderson. And let's think about all the stuff that we learned today. Don't carry a load of bricks on your back. But holish is my word of the day. Butthole. <laughs> you can't unring the bell, but you can move forward. Mm-hmm. There is always evidence, but most importantly, thank God for stovepipes. There you go. That's right. That's going to do it for this episode of the Suffering Podcast. Don't forget, you can always listen before you watch. And if you're looking to go out for dinner tonight, go to Grand Saloon, 940 Van Houten Avenue in Clifton. Go see Nick. He'll take care of you. Follow us on all social media platforms. Follow Mike at Mike underscore Felice. Follow me at Real Kevin Donaldson. And, of course, follow the Suffering Podcast. We're going to see you on the next episode. <laughs>